0: Hey, we'll be going to be continuing our uh, study in Luke chapter 5. So it's been a blessing going through Luke. So as you make your way to chapter 5 of the Gospel of Luke, this is encouraging. Amen? I mean, it's just so encouraging to me Wednesday nights. Seeing God's people pausing for just a minute right in the middle of the battle, right? Right in the middle of the work week. We're stopping, we're pausing. Just to acknowledge the greatness of this God that we serve. Amen. Amen. Through the fellowship and the meal, being with God's people, the worship and, and now the word is a, a, truly a blessing. Blessing for me, encouraging. Hopefully it sustains us through the rest of the week. Amen. So it's a blessing to be here. Like I said, we'll be in chapter five. We have a lot to work to do today. So we're going to chip away at this. We're going to divide and conquer this chapter. It's going to come in five little parts if you're a note taker. Uh, Five little hunks. The first one here will be verses 1 through 11. If you are a note taker, we'll just call it Jesus Calling the First Disciples. You ready? Now come on, I know I wear my glasses today, but you guys got to have more for me. Come on. You guys ready? Come on. All right. I need help this evening, so don't be afraid to keep me energized, okay? Verse 1, Luke 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little while from the land, and he sat down. And taught the people from the boat. So here's the scene Jesus getting pressed in upon, getting quite literally squeezed down, being pursued by a crowd. And if you caught it there, it's actually pretty uplifting for me. They were desiring and pressing in on him because they wanted to hear the word of God. Is that not encouraging? These guys were hungry. You know, it's got to start somewhere, right? And a desire to make spiritual things a priority and want to hear from Jesus is a start, right? It's certainly not the end, but it's a start, right? He's got to have something to work with. These guys were so eagerly desiring God's word that they pressed in upon him. I really like that as a Bible student and a Bible teacher. These guys were hungry for real answers to real problems that they were suffering from that the old orthodoxy of Judaism did not address. They were hungry for that. They were seriously thirsty for instructions and guidelines to point down towards a new way that Jesus was ushering in, right? A new way that he was bringing in They were thirsty for that. They were thirsty for wisdom, power, authority that was coming out of Jesus' mouth. I find that really encouraging. And maybe you are like me. I say this all the time. You're probably taller, but you're probably built just like me inside, right? I get old enough, I start to think about a couple things. I'm way more apt to have and release a little bit of regret in my life. Like, I'll admit (laughs) Man, that was a waste of my time. Man, I wish I could have a do-over with that person. Right? Just me? Am I talking to the right people? You know what? I don't have one ounce of regret. It's the time I've spent between these pages. Not an ounce of regret. Because in here you find Jesus Christ. And he's got power. He's got wisdom that will sustain you. And will quench your thirst. Amen? Amen. Because here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that when a person opens and studies this Bible in earnest, he's in a good position, he's in a good relationship with the indwelling spirit, and his teaching ministry can come and minister to you, and he is truly the teacher, and these words come alive. They're supernatural. It can't help but change you when it's in that environment. This word is powerful. It pricks you right where it needs to be pricked. Right? Sometimes I read this book and I say to myself, Who's reading who? <laughs> Have you ever said that? Very encouraging to me that these guys were pressing in. No regrets. They wanted this. Now listen, they were pressing in on him so much that he was losing real estate. Jesus is running out of real estate. He's backpedaling and he's hitting the Sea of Galilee. And he looks and says, He's a boat. Simon's boat says Simon take me out Give me a little space from this crowd He paddles him out a little ways Sits down with Jesus in a boat And Jesus preaches a sermon Taking advantage of the acoustic amplification of this water Right And I don't know what that sermon was like We don't know I'm sure it was powerful And I'm sure these people were sustained Amen I like that Pressed in on him I love that verse four, picking it up here. Peter had a response after the sermon. And when he had finished speaking, when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put us out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come on over and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so they began to sink. Awesome. Now, I wonder what Peter was thinking after that sermon. Now, Lord, that was an awesome sermon, and man, amazing, but I'm a fisherman, Okay, we're not doing this to have a meal. This is what I do for a living. And you do not fish in the middle of the day in the deep. See, we to- he said, we toiled all night. He knew how to fish. And the ways that they fished back then were at night, when the fish would come up against the shore. It was real easy to catch them. They toiled all night and caught zero. You see, Peter's like, come on. You see, Jesus' command to launch out into the deep and throw your nets and have another try at success was really a contrast in Jesus' authority and ability versus their ability. Oh, we tried all night. Lord, you're crazy, but have you ever been faced with such a quandary, right? This would be the equivalent of, you ever been How many people still had fish in here? James Dennis? You ever see the guy that's fishing in the frog water? He's like, dude, the fish are over here. This is where the fish are. What are you doing over there? You see the guy? If if you've never seen that, you're that guy. (laughs) Fishing in the frog water where there's no fish. That's kind of, I think, what Peter thought. It's a contrast. To be willing and be open enough to do something that's maybe unorthodoxed. Have you ever been faced with that? Especially in spiritual things. Like, this is the way we do things, <laughs> right? Boom, boom, boom. This is what's going to happen. We have these formulas. We... I think we're faced with that a lot. And I think sometimes we just need to leave Jesus' little room, okay? That contrast that his way is worth trying. Peter does that, and, you know, Peter gets a bad rap in the Gospels, but so far I love him. Because his response is pretty awesome. Straight away, he says, in essence, we'll fish in the frog water because you said it. By your word, I will let down the nets. Right? By your word, I will let it down. That's always the battle. Your way, not mine. Thine will, not mine. It's a battle of wills. Peter was willing to do something a little unorthodoxed had a chance for success, and as we read here, they had success Jesus' way, didn't they? They filled net after net, catch of a lifetime. So full they couldn't if both boats were sinking, right? Success. Let's read on, but when Simon Peter saw it, it's a miracle for Peter. Peter's a fisherman. He just saw something that was unheard of. Peter had a response. And instead of calling him master, he calls him, oh, Lord. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John and sons of Zebedee who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. (laughs) Peter, there's no evidence Peter was saved yet, but he definitely saw a holy man in front of him because he hit his knees and said, Lord, (laughs) depart from me. I'm a sinful man. he felt felt opened up and exposed in front of Jesus. And he says, depart from me. I'm not worthy. It's interesting to me to see Jesus' response. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to be of great service to me, fishing for men. Sin does not scare away Jesus. Jesus. Did you hear me? Sin does not scare away our Lord. I got to get an amen. It doesn't scare him. He doesn't look at you and go, I don't even want to see you out of my peripheral. Depart from me. Jesus never rejects the contrite sinner. Person with inabilities who comes with a humble spirit. He never, ever rejects those people. In fact, I think we get it wrong lots of times as Peter got it wrong, as the prophet Isaiah got it wrong. I can't be in your presence. Realizing our sin and our inability is a starting point. Amen? It's a prerequisite for service. You have to get to the point where you know that your natural abilities, your inabilities are right out there, and I am a sinner, and I'm repenting. Please use me, supernaturally, fill me, use me. Then we can be fully dependent on God when we admit our inabilities, you see. Peter's confession becomes his resume for service, amen? (laughs) And his humility, an elevator to spiritual maturity. Sin doesn't scare away our Lord. Not a bit. Don't ever forget that. It's important. It's awesome these people saw all this in the presence of our Lord and they left the catch of their lifetime. That's what commentators say. This would be a hole that could sustain them for many years. I don't know. Maybe they cashed it in, used the money to their, I don't know what they did. This is how I like to see it. I don't see any of those details in any of the Gospels. I think they left the catch of their lifetime to go with one that they wanted to follow. That was special. It was Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. They left the occupation of fishing to be with the Lord. And then their service started. That's our first hunk here. That's how we called at least, you know, the first three disciples. It's a great story. They became fishers of men. Remember that song? I will make you, come on, fishers. I love it. That's how it started. The next section here is five verses. It's when Jesus cleanses the leper. That will be our bite number two here. Especially like this story. Jesus, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, just a note on leprosy. I'm sure most of you guys in here know about leprosy or at least heard a little bit about it. But it is really a grotesque skin disease. And back then it had a lot of stigma. It was actually the only doctors they had back then were the scribes and Pharisees, the priests. If you want any background on leprosy, just read Leviticus 13 and 14. You'll read more than you want to read about this disease. It's that disgusting group of skin diseases that start with a little white, you know, pustule. I'm a wrestling coach, so I've seen white pustules before. Seemingly insignificant, and it kills the hair above it. The diagnosis and the treatment was left up to the priest in the Jewish custom in life. They would have to go to a priest when they started having rashes and skin diseases and they would inspect it to see if they had the start of this disease start as little and then it would end with nothing left than a devouring devastating disease that feeds off your flesh where fingers fall off and noses fall off and ears fall off and you are just a hideous being but it starts as an under-the-skin little thing that seems insignificant. The priest, when he diagnosed this, they were pretty good at diagnosing it. They would diagnose this, but the only treatment, they have antibiotics like they do now. We've almost eradicated this disease now. They would isolate them. Pretty good idea, really, when you think about it. They quarantined them. They put them up for seven days, then they check it out again. They put them back for seven days. And they, if you read Leviticus, it's, a, it's pretty cool. These guys were, they had some things figured out. God had some order for them. But they were isolated. These were an untouchable being in the Jewish society. Isolated, untouchable, grotesque, lowest class of citizens. They were considered unclean. So much that they couldn't even be in the cities. They had to camp outside on their own. Isolated. You know what that would do to someone's soul? Isolation. Rejection. They'd walk through town if they needed something. They'd have to say, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. I'm coming through. That's me. The leper. Amazing. This disease has some stigma. You got to look into it. The Jewish mind and heart would see the leper That's a gross person that you stayed away from because God forbid we get leprosy and there's no antibiotics. And we get put out and away from our friends. We can't go into the temple. Stay away from those people that are unclean. That's the background to leprosy. And as we read in verse two, and when he saw Jesus, this leper, full of leprosy, Dr. Luke says, this wasn't somebody with a lesion. This was a grotesque man, obviously full of leprosy. When he saw him, he fell on his face and begged Jesus, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? And Jesus stretched out his hands and touched him. He touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, amen? Could you imagine yeah, clap. Jesus, man, are you serious? He healed the leper. <laughs> wow. I love the audacity of the leper, the outcast, making his way to Jesus. Fell on his knees and he said something very important. He said, "I know you can, but if you will, I'm ready to be healed." That's a good way to pray for a miracle. If you will it, I know you can, but if you will it, here I am. I'm giving myself to you. You heal me if you feel fit. You're definitely able. Your arm is not short, you see. That's a great way to pray for a miracle because some of us who have been around people who are sick and who need a miracle, we've learned a few things. We've learned that Jesus reigns on the just and the unjust. Amen? Sometimes he does incredible miracles. Trust me. Cancer, gone. MRIs, normal. This guy's a miracle maker, this Lord that we serve. And it happens sometimes. But sometimes it doesn't, does it? Sometimes it's for the glory of God, John chapter 5. Sometimes... He waits to heal you on the other side of eternity when true healing happens. Amen. But that's a great way to pray. The leper had it right. You fall down on your knees and you ask and you tell him he is able. You are able to heal anything, you have power over disease and sickness. Amen. If you will, and we'll live with the results, Lord Jesus. I love the way the leper prayed. He is awesome. I don't know if you, I tried to paint a picture of you of the isolation and the untouchable nature of the leper who had just been touched by the great physician. And I can't help but wondering what went through this man's m- mind. I wonder when the last time he had felt human touch. Jesus could have healed him so many different ways. But the great physician reaches down and touches a leper. Do you know what that would do to the heart and the mind of a Jewish religious bigot? Do you have any idea what that would do? Oh, that would just blow his mind. I will clean you. I will clean you. Jesus did the unthinkable. He touched him. Now, like some of you men in this room, maybe ladies, but when I grew up, I grew up looking up to my dad and thinking my dad was pretty tough, right? And he was. He was a little guy. Imagine that, right? But he was pretty tough. He worked hard. I'm glad he taught me how to do that, and I would work with him a lot. You know, when he gave you a hug or tried to show affection, those hands that only a mason could earn, right? He's scratchy. I remember his hands were scratchy. He didn't have any fingerprints. He rubbed them raw by all the brick and the block he was picking up in stone over the years. He's a pretty tough guy. And I saw him sometimes take some blows in life growing up. I saw him drop a big old block from the top of a tailgate right on his big toe. And it really exploded his toe, broke a bunch of bones. And I remember watching him take his sock off and he didn't want to look at it. And it looked like, you know, when you run over a frog and his guts come out, that's what his toe looked like. I was like, dad, let's finish the day, son. (laughs) Got mud in the mixer. Didn't shed a tear. I'm like, man, this guy's tough. This guy's the real deal. Time and time again, I would see stuff like that. But one thing I'll never forget about my dad is there at Four Square Church, worshiping the Lord, as a young man who didn't know much about that kind of stuff, I saw my dad, and he was crying. And it was to this song, he touched me. Because we're all lepers, Amen. Shackled by heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me, oh, He touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know He touched me, and He made me whole. Amen. That's what Jesus did to this leper. In a way, we're all lepers. We all need Jesus' touch. And he obliged him. And I'll tell you what. When Jesus touches you, you're never the same. Jesus' touch was the welcome back to the leper. Come back home. It's a welcome back. And he does it time and time again to us. And I like that story. Let's pick it up in verse 14 just so we can finish this section. And after he did this miracle, he charged him to tell no one but to go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof or testimony to them all. But now even more, the report about Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and he healed all the infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus says, hey, don't go tell anybody. Go to the priest. And I kind of like this because I think it's a slight little dig on the priest. He said, listen, don't go tell a bunch of people. Go back as the law commands and go to the priest and have him inspect you and tell him your testimony, literally your proof. Give him your subjective story about what just happened. And the priest would know what happened. I don't know if you know this Books, the gospel. This gospel is probably written 16, maybe 1,500 years ago before Leviticus that those priests are diagnosing and treating leprosy and all that time all the lepers were diagnosed but to my knowledge there's not been one Jewish ritual that they were doing Read Le- Leviticus 14 sprinkling that, that cured leprosy they never, they never cured it you think about that for 1500 years a doctor is doing a treatment, and never, it never worked. And then all of a sudden, a man, a God-man, Jesus Christ, touched someone, and it healed him. I think Leviticus, I'm not a big fan of Leviticus, sorry. I mean, I, mean, I like it, it's God's word, but it's not the most, it's pretty boring. It's a worth, I mean, it's the law. I wonder if that law was written so that some of these guys would go, wow, this guy's different. Man, heal leprosy? Something's going on here. Maybe. I think it was a little dig. Maybe in layman's term, there's a new sheriff in town and his name is Jesus Christ, (laughs) right? And he's amazing. (laughs) He's doing something nobody's doing. Something's changing, a new way he's ushering in, right? Healing of the leopard was a messianic act. That's what it was. And he wanted to go tell the priest, Messiah's here. Lepers are getting healed, amen? Let's move forward. Bite number three, we have Jesus healing the paralytic. Check it out here, starting in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching Jesus, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who had been paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when they saw, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Great story. Everybody knows this story, Right? couldn't get into Jesus. They go through the roof. The zeal and the work that it took for these four men and their buddy on the, on the mat, carrying him in, was a demonstration of their faith. They knew Jesus could heal him. And I don't know whose idea it was. People have made a lot of allegations about this story. I don't know. I'm going to say this, that it could have been the paralyzed guy's idea. You don't know. It could have been his faith. He could have been, hey, guys, get me there. Or it could have been four guys helping a guy that was really lame who couldn't help himself. It matters not to me. Their faith brought them to Jesus in a great, zealous way. When Jesus saw it, he said, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that how all of our sins are forgiven? By faith, right? By grace through faith we're saved, right? They had a faith in Jesus to forgive and to heal. It's a great picture of that in my opinion. I like it. This miracle, as it goes on, is really secondary. What we really want to get out of this hunk is that Jesus is saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. And as you'll see in a verse or two, them are fighting words. Because that means he's saying, I am God. And they weren't ready for that yet. Check it out. Verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemous? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly, <laughs> right? Who can for- forgive sins except God alone? These guys just don't get it. Exactly. That's what, that's what I'm saying. God, Jesus is like, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Cracks me up. Is that just me that's kind of ironic there? Jesus couldn't be more obvious. Blasphemous. God alone does that. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, verse 22, I love that. Hey, I don't know about miracles catching my attention. It probably obviously would. But I'll tell you one thing that would catch my attention is that when someone knows my thoughts. Think about that for just a moment. When I'm thinking something where he can't see or hear me and he says, oh, hey, guys, by the way, he constantly is doing that. I'm saying, guys, you guys better listen up. This guy's a, this is Jesus. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them and says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. But you may know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said, basically he's saying, you want proof? What's easier? You need, okay. Let me just attach a miracle to this so you know I have the authority to forgive sins. And he looks right at the guy and says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And the amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. I'll tell you what the extraordinary thing was. It wasn't that a lame man walked. It said, this is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that's what they couldn't get over. He was saying, I am God. John has the great I am statements. You know those? Where Jesus constantly is proving and telling them, I am the I am. There's a bunch of them. They're fun to study. Well, this is Luke's version. Yeah, I have the authority to forgive sins. Let me validate that with a miracle. Boom. Listen, it's the Lord Jesus Christ's divine prerogative to forgive sin. In his alone. And he's announcing himself as this person. He's looking at these religious elites of the time and saying, I am the God-man Jesus Christ your Jewish Messiah that, by the way, you're going to reject so that I could be the Lord and the Savior to everybody who comes to me with faith. I'm thankful for that. Amen? Amen. The extraordinary thing was that he has the divine prerogative, the authority to forgive sins. The next hunk, verses 27 through 32, it's Jesus' calling of Levi. And what we want to get out of this is that in these few verses is Jesus' attitude towards sinners. Do you know Jesus has an attitude towards sinners? He has a perspective, and it's worth reminding ourselves of it. Let's check it out. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to them, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, the thing you have to know about tax collectors is they weren't very liked in these days. They weren't very popular. I'm not so sure they're that popular now, but then it was worse. It was way worse. It was way worse. Really, what they were was uh, Jewish people, right, who were tasked with collecting taxes on good, hardworking, poor Jewish people to give it to an occupying, brutal force of the Roman Empire. Do you imagine? The, it'd be like us raising taxes, an IRS agent, but they were giving the money to Hamas. That'd kind of make you mad. And it was worse, because these guys were unique in the way that, I think the way most historians talk about tax collectors is they had a region that they, t- they collected from. And they had a quota that they had to collect. And anything above and beyond that was theirs. That was their salary as a tax collector. No room for abuse there, would you think? (laughs) I mean, honor system. (laughs) So I like how one guy described the tax collector. One guy was reading. It was awesome. He said, uh, where is it at? He said, said, uh, most tax... Tax collectors of this time were the social equivalent of pimps and informants. That sounds about right. They, they were tattletale. hey, that guy's doing this, and this collect this money, and they're l- leveraging and whoring out their Jewish friends to make themselves wealthy, is what they were doing, all for an occupying force. Come on. How could you not like that guy? Okay, anyways, that's Levi. Matthew, we call him. I don't know if he was sick of that lifestyle, but it didn't take much. Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. And he said, okay, I'm following you. Pretty cool. Verse 29, and Levi made a great feast. He had a lot of money, (laughs) so he made some food. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining on the table with them. So you have a bunch of dirtbag cheats, morally irrelevant and derelicts, really, lounging around all the money they cheated all the Jews out of. They were partying, eating, feasting with Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribe grumbled and murmured at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Gee, I think Jesus liked hanging out with the sinners and the reprobates. Have you noticed that trend when you read the gospels? <laughs> Scribes are like, why are you hanging out with these guys? These are the guys that we despise. These are these aren't good people, Jesus. You're gonna catch the sinnies. Aren't you afraid? You have them touching a leopard, and then you have them reclining on tables feasting and macking down with a bunch of guys. I mean, think about the way this looks. And I love Jesus' answer. The physician gravitates towards the patient. You know what I know about teachers? They they teach. Plumbers plumb, electricians electrify. Right? But doctors. They're supposed to be doctoring. They're the hammer for a nail, and they need, the, they, they need the nail. The nail's the sick. That's what they do. They help sick people. He desires to heal. He's the great physician, you see. He, in, it never ceases to amaze me, the affinity that Jesus has for sinners. God, help us in our self-righteousness. Amen. He's attracted. He's like, hey, man, I'm a doctor. Let me in there. Right? Great physician, Jesus. Those religious elites did not get it, did they? It's been said many times that there's no one too bad to be saved by Jesus Christ. Rightly said, amen. There's nobody too bad. But according to Jesus' words, there are some too good. And that's his point. I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for the self-righteous, the people that think they're going to make it on their own. I came for the people that know they're broken, that are humble and contrite before me and want forgiveness, want salvation, want power, want renewed life. Amen? Lord, help our self-righteousness. Last section here. We're getting close. A few more verses. The last section here is from verse 33 on. And I think here just it ends with a question or an attitude that Jesus has towards fasting. And I think it's worth exploring? I do. Let's read it. First thing to notice about fasting is that it's, it's also important to note that Jesus never ever oppo- opposes fasting. In fact, he promotes it, but he does, he does criticize its abuse. And it's important to note, and I'll start this section off with a couple verses from Matthew, chapter 6, verse 16, to give us a little bit of perspective, Jesus' perspective on fasting. Jesus talking about to his disciples how to fast. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like a hypocrite. (laughs) For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others on their face. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You know people who fast that way? I'd like to fellowship with you, but I'm on a three-day fast. Sorry. You know, as a wrestling coach, I've seen a lot of people fast. Not for spiritual reasons. But they hold down their weight. And worse, they hold down their water. And it's rough. I kind of like it, to be honest with you. <laughs> I tell parents, hey, you know, a little bit's okay. We're not going to kill them, but we're going to get pretty close. But I say it's good for the American kid to miss a meal every once in a while. It's all right. They do it all around the world. It'll toughen him up a little bit. I won't let him die, okay? He'll just be hungry for a night or two. I've seen, just kidding. But no, I really do tell him that. I say it's okay, you know? It's not bad. And I have a saying, and I think it's pretty much, it's biblical after reading that. It is, because I've seen a lot of people whine about making weight. And we have a saying in our wrestling room, especially to my own two, is I say, keep your secret. Keep it. No one cares about it. You're walking around, moping around because you haven't eaten or drinking in four, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So you've missed a couple meals. I know it hurts a little bit. Quit moping around. You haven't done anything yet. You haven't done one thing yet. You haven't even scored a point yet. You picked the weight class. I didn't push you there. Keep your secret. I don't want to know about it. Nobody else wants to know it. Put your smile on. Put the oil in your hair and wash your face, as Jesus would say. Look good and hold your head and make your weight. And don't guzzle down your electrolytes in front of everybody. Get out in the car and do that. I don't want anybody seeing you down. That's what I, I'm a mean coach, I guess. I don't know. Want to wrestle for me? (laughs) Keep your secret. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, if you want to fast, and you'll see, he encourages that. Fasting and praying, what I know about missing meals, it it gets your attention. I think that's the whole point of it, is I need answers, Lord, to something serious. And I'm not going to eat today, and every time I get hungry, I think about that. I'm going to stay focused on that issue, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to be reminded by that physical thing that keeps reminding, I'm, I'm going to look to you, and I want answers. I want to hear from you. It, it crispens you up. I think fasting's good in the right time and with the right motive. Jesus is saying, be careful. Don't abuse it. Listen to this. this is, the Pharisees didn't get that. Verse 33, Pharisees said to him, the disciples of John fasts, and they pray all the time. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Jesus makes a great comparison. There's a time and place to fast. And at a wedding, it's not that time. It's not. Jesus is saying, Listen, you're my bride. They're, they're, they're with the bridegroom. We're together. This is a time for celebration, for love, enjoyment. It's a time to have some food and rejoice together. One of the cool things about living where I live, I have a nice backyard. It's kind of nature ish, there's no houses you can see. And I've had weddings at my house. And it's a lot of work and a lot of preparation. But it's so awesome to see the party afterwards. It's so awesome to see the bride and the groom come out in nature and they get married. It's awesome. It's such an honor for that to happen. But I've never once after, by the way, we're going to fast after this. and No food for anybody. No, there's food galore. There's tri-tip, right? There's all the food you can want. The best stuff for the best guests because it's a time to enjoy. Just as Jesus is saying, I'm I'm here with my bride. And listen, I'm the bridegroom, and I'm not going to be here always. They're going to eat with me. There's time for fasting, but that's not now. Amen? Jesus was starting to think and try to usher in something new. And he tells a parable to cement this in and that we'll finish with. He told a parable, and it says this. No one tears a piece from the new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts on new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, and the skins of it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good." Listen, Jesus is trying to make a little bit of a comparison here about things that aren't compatible. You don't take an old garment and patch it with a new one. It doesn't make it a new garment, right? In those days, you don't put new wine into an old wine skid that's rigid and has no flexibility. The fermentation process breaks it, and it spills and ruins everything. They're not compatible. all always saying with these two parables, a story running alongside a deeper truth, is that those two things aren't compatible. What Jesus is trying to get through to them with the example of fasting and all the way through this chapter is, listen, I'm bringing in something new. I didn't come here to polish up your orthodoxy. I didn't come here to take the Jewish religion and polish it up a little bit and all your religiosity and all your ceremony and make it better. That's not what he came to do. He came to bring in something brand new right? Brand new Jesus was bringing. He came so that he could give us eternal life and life everlasting. He came to bring us the new covenant, new things. They're not getting it. Once we were dead and now we're alive, right? We were blind and now we see. That's the idea. So Lord, thank you for this chapter in Luke. We're so grateful for the hope that you give in it. I pray that you'd bless these people for being around you, you and your family. So be with us in the matchless name of Jesus, amen.